Happy New Year, everyone. Today, we're talking about fornicating rabbits, zombies, Mario and Luigi, why the Toronto Maple Leafs keep on losing, and of course, money. Like it or not, you, me, and everyone else, we all have a relationship with money. And for the most part, it's a complicated one. My name's Sean Maslick. Welcome to the Most Hated F-Word Podcast. As a certified financial planner, I want to take you on a journey as we throw out the technical finance books and shift our focus towards our minds, our money, and what matters most. If you're looking to improve your relationship with money and build true wealth, you're in the right spot. Finances does not need to be the most hated F-Word. Welcome to season two of the Most Hated F-Word podcast. I'm happy you have been tuning in to our shows. And if you hadn't had a chance, please And I say, please do me a favor, head over to Apple Podcast and Spotify to leave a review as it really helps bring guests to the show. In 2020, I was extremely pleased with the quality of guests that came on the show to share their wisdom and insights with us. For 2021, we're going to continue finding interesting, insightful, and inspiring guests to help us all navigate our own money stories. On today's show, I speak with Rob Brown, the author of a hilarious personal finance book called Wealthing Like Rabbits. Robert has the ability to take a complex personal finance and break them down into simple and interesting concepts in a world, in a personal finance world that is, that's full of noise and a constant battle to try to outsmart each other. Rob likes to keep things simple. He likes to stick to the personal finance advice that works. And this is why he's on the show. Because we need simple. In a world of complexity, we need simplicity. We need to stop trying to overcomplicate personal finances. Enjoy. Welcome back to the Most Hated F Word podcast. Today, I have a guest by the name of Rob Brown. Rob is a personal finance writer and speaker and the author of a Canadian bestseller book, Wealthing Like Rabbits. Wealthing Like Rabbits uh, has been featured along with Rob in the Globe and Mail, the National Post, Reader's Digest, as well as being guests on News Talk, 1010, Money Talks, BNN, Personal Finance, and more. Rob is also a monthly writer for Money Sense Magazine. Uh, I don't know if this is updated or not, Rob, but uh, for, for a section called Money Hacker and is a regular contributor to the Money Sense blog. Uh, if I missed anything, you can have some time to uh, fill in the gaps. But something that we're going to be dis- discussing today is Rob's love for zombies, why we should stop cheering for the Toronto Maple Leafs as an Emmettonian. I agree. <laughs> Mario Brothers and even fornicating rabbits. So, Rob, welcome to the show. Sean, thanks for having me. And that, that bio is pretty accurate. Uh, ever since Money Sense went to a digital issue rather than the uh, paper issue, I haven't done any writing for them, but that was certainly true a couple of years ago. Okay. So Rob, thanks so much for joining us on, uh, on this podcast. Before we started recording, I, I was alluding to um, my interests of late have been the intersection between our minds, our money, and what matters most. And a lot of the conversations I've been having as of late have been really diving into like the psychology of why we make financial decisions and what does money mean to us. But why I want to have you on the podcast is I really like your simple and I say this truthfully, enjoyable 
conversations around money and tactical tips and strategies, what we can do today. So why don't you just tell us about yourself and why you wrote the book, Wealthy Like Rabbits, and we will get into that topic or that title and what it means. Sure. Well, the reason I decided to write Wealthy Like Rabbits is really two things that kind of mash together. First of all, I was that guy you meet at parties and you might be that guy or one of your listeners might be that guy or that girl that for 25 years said, you know what? Someday I'm going to write a book. That was <laughs> just a, a lifelong bucket list goal for me. And it's just something I wanted to do. I was that guy at work that, you know, wrote the page and a half email when three lines could have done. And about 10 years ago, I was, uh, talking about writing a book to my wife. And she kind of said, well, you know, you've been talking about this for 25 years. When are you going to do it? And it wasn't quite like that, but she really was the impetus that got me to put pen to paper and start writing. And the reason I decided to write a personal finance book that was aimed at people in that late teen, 20-something age is when I was a 20-something, I read the iconic the Wealthy Barber by Dave Chilton. And it was an epiphany moment of my life. That book had a huge influence on me. But that said, I didn't feel that teens and 20-somethings were terribly well served by a lot of the personal finance books that were in the Canadian market at that time. Great books, but not really aimed at engaging the 20-somethings. So I decided to take my shot at writing a book that hopefully young people would find valuable, that would contain good fundamental introductory personal finance book, but at the same time be entertaining. Yeah. You know, you mentioned a couple times uh, aimed at the 20 something, maybe even early thirties. As I read this book, I just kept thinking like, this isn't an introduction guide. This is, this is practical, real entertaining. And I mean it entertaining um, information that I really feel is applicable to many, uh, many individuals, even if in the fifties and sixties. And, and I say that because I, I, I truly feel as we become more, or we've been having access to more information, more blogs, more books, more everything. Um, we, we, we get fascinated with absorbing more information, absorbing more information. Then we get down this rabbit hole that all of a sudden, I need to be a PhD economist to plan for my retirement. But why don't you just share, um, I got a quote here. Uh, I don't know where it is, but if it's from your book, but you talk about how simple retirement planning actually can be. And I think that's really what this book does a good job. And I thank you for that is that you distill this very uh, big thing that people fear retirement, planning for retirement. I'm not smart enough to save. I'm not smart enough to know which investments. So what's your thought on just simplifying retirement and how it can actually be simple retirement? Sure. And you know, personal finance is one of the few fields that doesn't require a great deal of expertise and PhDs in order to be successful. You know, if you turn on your television, wherever you are, I promise you, you can find somebody on BNN or the CBC that's talking about money and where the markets are going today. And all of that stuff is just noise when it comes to retirement planning for your personal finances. I can sum up, you know, retirement planning, personal finances for people pretty much in four sentences. One, you need to have some income. You have to have the sorts of money. Two, 
you should avoid excessive debt. I'm not saying to stay out of all debt. You know, obviously, it's pretty hard to buy a house or buy a condo without taking on a mortgage, which is certainly a form of debt. But stay out of dumb and excessive debt. And maybe later on, we'll talk about houses and mortgages too. Mm -hmm. You need to save some money for your future. And perhaps just as importantly, even more importantly, you need to be committed to saving for the long term. And for one of the best things that you can do is to not worry about keeping up with the Joneses, automate your savings and get out of the way. And Sean, I swear to God, I believe from the bottom of my heart, if the majority of people did those simple four things, they'd be 80% on their way to a, a comfortable retirement. Now, saying that and doing it are two completely different things. Yeah, <laughs> it totally. And it is that simple. I like that income, debt, savings, and we're done. Stay away from Podcast the Jones. Yeah, it's <laughs> podcasts over. And and really, Rob, my background is financial. I'm a financial planner. And that's why I've taken this deep curve towards the financial psychology because I've realized that, wow, the human brain is what's screwing us up on this financial planning. How can we take control of that? But um, something that I, I do want to talk about is, again, these four things are such a good thing to focus on. And ways, though, you talk about retirement planning um, in the book. Um, before I go there, I want to go to the title, actually. Okay. We're going to talk about a simple way to get that saving that you talk about in the book. But first, the title, Wealthy Like Rob, Rabbits. Roberts, that's you. Uh, can you tell us what do zombies and rabbits have to do with this idea of compound interest and as it relates to the title of your book? Well, the title of the book is Wealthing Like Rabbits. And again, it's two things mashed together. And I'll take the wealthing part first. Yeah. I think that sometimes we use the word saving improperly sometimes. When we say we're saving, we could be saving for our future, which is great. But let's say we go to a store and buy a big screen TV on sale. We'll say we saved $400 <laughs> on that TV. Well, Sean, we haven't saved anything. Perhaps we spent $400 less than we would have otherwise, but we still spent X number of dollars to get that television. So I came up with this notion that whenever you do any saving, that's true saving that contributes to your future, to your overall net wealth, we should call that wealthing mm -hmm. instead. A, because it sounds cooler, and B, because hopefully it'll start some conversations about money that'll get people talking about things. And the like rabbits part comes from the idea of compound interest and how your savings can grow over a long period of time. And in the book, to introduce that subject, I tell the story, and it's a true story, about what happened in Australia with the Australian rabbit population. And to simplify a four-page story in the book, in 1859, there was a farmer named Thomas Austin and Tom had emigrated to Australia from England, and he was a fan of rabbit hunting. So one morning in 1859 in Australia, Tom woke up and decided to go rabbit hunting. Problem was, Sean, there were no rabbits in Australia. Rabbits are not indigenous to the Australian continent. So Tom made what turned out to be a pretty fateful decision. Legend has it that Tom arranged to have 24, 24 rabbits shipped from England dumped them onto his farm in Australia, and 60 years later, there were over 10 billion <laughs> rabbits in Australia. One of the worst or best, whichever way you're looking at it, 
um, invasive species examples ever. Because if you're, as you may have heard, rabbits are pretty good at compounding. <laughs> so I use that story just to demonstrate how much, you know, a small number can grow into a large number given only 60 years. So just, it was the first of a couple examples around compound interest. And you mentioned the zombies. Uh, while the rabbit example was a great way of showing how numbers can grow, it really wasn't very realistic in terms of looking at someone's money could grow because the rabbit population in Australia grew at, I think it was 39 point something percent every year. Um, so I used another example of a zombie apocalypse and I used, I think it was 110 zombies every week for 40 years, compounding at six and a half percent, which turned out to be over a million dollars. And the larger lesson there is that by contributing $110 a week for 35 or 40 years, you could potentially end up with over a million dollars. But I think the larger lesson there is that in the latter example, in order to get the million dollars, they only had to contribute, I think it was $208,000. The difference of $800,000 all was generated through interest. So I think, I think people are, you know, almost sick and tired about hearing about compound interest. This is not a, a new thing in personal finance, but the fact that it's not new doesn't change the fact that it can produce some pretty remarkable results. So that's the kind of fun way I tried to use to teach personal finance ideas. Yeah, I think, I think they're brilliant because I, I agree. I think this compound interest conversation is if you have $100 and you get 10% and add it, I, I think people are tired of that, but to your point, the power of compound compound interest is undeniable and it's so important. So I really, really appreciate your approach to make it a little more fun and visual. Like we can actually like, okay, I can picture that. Like I was picturing Australia, I can't believe 10 billion rabbits flooded with rabbits. I've never been to Australia, but I assume there's a lot of rabbits there. <laughs> um, and I think that's so important for us because it's, again, it's making it simple. You're not going into this little calculation of showing people, okay, here's the math behind it. Um, and I think that's where we really need to to go with personal finance is just make it simple, stick to the foundations that work. And I mean, when we look at Warren Buffett, I can't remember exactly, but it's like 99% of his wealth was made after 50. And it's not yeah, because he made that. Too. Yeah. And it's not because he made like a good business decision at that point. It's because he started investing at like 11 years old and it was in the market for all those years and the compound. And if you ever look at a chart of for, to listeners of his, if you type in Warren Buffett's compound growth, it, it's exponentially like such a big curve towards the end of like after 50 years old. It's funny because when we talk about billionaires like Warren Buffett or Jeff Bezos, whoever, I'm usually hesitant to use those examples because I find a lot of people look to be, you know, multimillionaires where I'm just trying to get people to be comfortable. Right. But I think there is some lessons in the compound interest example, because I think there's a couple of reasons why people don't start a long-term savings plan, even when they see the numbers. And, and one of them is that you need to recognize that the way compound interest works, it's a long-term game. Mm. Warren Buffett has also said that one of the reasons he's been so successful is because he managed to live so long. Right. And Second of all, he likes to joke that he didn't start early enough. And he started, I think it was 15 years of age or something like that. 
But when you first start out, if you're a 20 something, you've got a mortgage, you've got a couple of kids, and there's a guy like me on a podcast saying, find a way to put away a hundred bucks a month. Trust me, y'all, you won't regret it in 40 years. Even if you do that for the first couple of years, your growth is slow in the first couple of years. And it doesn't look like you're gaining very much. And sometimes it's hard to have that long-term vision and understand that the real growth of compound interest comes from money, building on money, building on money, year after year after year, sometimes for 30 or 35 years before you start to get the big results. So that's Mm -hmm. that's a a very long-term view, and sometimes that's hard to maintain. I understand that. Yeah. And just to your example with Warren Buffett and Jeff Bezos, I agree. I tend not to like to talk about like, yeah, because they're kind of in this different realm. But what I like about Warren Buffett is he'll say, you know, despite all the knowledge he has in like uh, investing in actual companies is he said for the vast majority of people, they just need to save in a simple investment account. And it's not tricky. It's time in the market. So yeah, rich slowly. Yeah. Um, and, and it's interesting if you look at the science, like behavioral finance, we, there's this term called hyperbolic discounting or empathy gap to your point is like, we can't empathize our future self. We're so like hungry for right now. And I think that's a big cognitive bias that we have is that we just can't envision ourselves for the future. But, um, again, I think keeping it simple, like what you have done in this book and explaining compound interest in that way really, really helps people. But I like, and maybe you could touch on this too. In the book you talked about, it's to start saving. It's one decision, then you don't have to make it anymore. Well, sure. You know, like there's lots of examples in our lives where we say, you know what, when I finally got around to doing it, it wasn't nearly as hard as I thought it would be. Taking that first step is the hard part. And I've had conversations with friends and family around starting an automated savings plan and you know whether that's just moving money from one account to the other every week setting up a standard order at your bank there's lots of different ways to do it but the thing is you have to make the arrangements and start and do it and I've had lots of conversations where I've walked away and people said you know Rob you're right that's going to make sense it's the right long-term decision I'm going to start that RSP I'm going to get that done save for my future save on my taxes now yeah I know I got to pay taxes later but I'll be retired then I don't care I'm going to do it and I'll go back and see them a year later and it's not done they haven't taken that initial I guess painful step to set it up after it's set up Hopefully, it's automated, and it becomes very easy after that. But I don't know how to better encourage people to take that first step. It's interesting. You talk about you know we, the way we make decisions around now and the present and our lives today versus making decisions for our future and what, where we're going to be 30, 40 years from now. And that's so true. People make most of the decisions based on how they feel and what's going on in their life right now. When I speak to students, I do a lot of speaking at colleges and universities, and I touch on those three points. Stay out of dumb debt, save some money for your future, don't keep up with the Joneses. And I can go on about those three subjects for over an hour, so I really beat it down. And I I usually wrap it up by saying something like this. I say, you know, it might seem overly simplistic to suggest that the cornerstones of your financial lives, you young people could be established by following those three simple rules. And of course, without knowing anything about anybody else's life or their finances situation, of course, it's unrealistic. But at the same time, I ask them to consider this. 
The only thing, the only thing that I know for certain about my life, your life, Sean, and everybody listening to this life 35 or 40 years later is that hopefully we're all going to be 35 or 40 years older. And if we're not, we don't need to worry about money. Mm. But if you can hop in that time machine, that proverbial time machine, and see yourself 35 years from now, who would you rather see? Someone who's, I don't know, 55 years of age and has $600,000 stashed away for their retirement? Or someone who's 55 years of age and owes a bank $35,000 and has no money saved for their retirement? And unfortunately, in Canada today, there's more people in the latter cohort than there is in the first cohort. Mm -hmm. Even if a young person decides to open their own business someday, and I think a lot of people will do that, they may need to turn to a bank or an investor to get some sort of capital. Who do they think is more likely for an investor to lend them money? Someone who has seen that they have managed their money responsibly or someone who has proven they don't manage their money responsibly? When you boil it all down, it's pretty hard to come up with a realistic scenario where all of us aren't better off by adhering to those three simple rules in whatever way is best in your life. Yeah. I, it's just fascinating how they are pretty simple, but yet our brains seek complexity. And yeah, it, it's, it, it's too bad. And then on the other side of this is we have the, the simplicity and again, I'm not discounting the, 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 the behavioral side is very difficult because really we're as, as like, as humans, we're hardwired, our evolutionary ancestors were, were taught to just think about today, like survival was, survival like, of the and our, our brain right. hasn't really been updated for all those years. But, um, <laughs> but then on the other side, we have, um, okay, so we have our brain working against us and like how we were hardwired as tribal members of community to just live for today. But then we have these interesting people that you talk a lot about in the book and you relate it to a Flintstones commercial. And what I'm talking about is debt. So why don't you start talking about debt? You, you talk about dumb debt. Um, and I really like that Flintstone commercial segue into your, your debt conversation. So maybe just touch on that because I, was, I was blown away when I was reading that and watched that YouTube video. When, uh, when I decided to write the two chapters, there's actually two chapters on debt. They're called Debt and Disease Part 1 and Debt and Disease Part 2. And the metaphor I used for explaining, first of all, credit card debt was uh, cigarette companies. And I told the story of how back in the late 50s and the early 60s, uh, cigarette companies. They were among the largest advertisers on TV. And it's hard for us to imagine today, but in 1962, for example, you could uh, turn on your television and Fred and Barney Flintstone would be having a smoke in the backyard while Wilma and Betty did all of the yard work. And when you watch those commercials today, it's just horrific. You say, I can't believe they got away with that. And I say, aren't we glad that we live in a world today where big companies and, and, and big organizations don't market young people in such a, you know, almost predatory way. And then I change gears a little bit and tell a true story of the day I took my own daughter to university on her first day at school. And when we got there, uh, you know, Jennifer did all that first day stuff. She got her schedule, bought some books, and then we were going to grab some lunch. And as we walked through the area where all the restaurants were, 
all of the big banks had credit card providers set up in the lobby on the first day. And they were handing out Frisbees and they were handing out T-shirts. And all you had to do is get a T-shirt was sign on this iPad and we'll give you a student credit card with a $2,000 limit or whatever it was. And I just thought, you know, no education piece, no information about how the card actually worked or what you could potentially be doing to your credit rating. And it's funny, I'm not anti-student credit card. I'm really not. But I do think the students have a right to be much better informed about how their cards work so that they can make better decisions when they decide to use the card. And I promise you that education piece isn't happening during Frost Week. So it was just a, a fun way to introduce the whole credit card piece. And then I uh, that chapter is a little bit of a scared straight on credit cards because I really walked through all of the way the credit card companies and Visa and MasterCard make a lot of money and all the different ways they can make monies from consumers and all the fees and what happens to interest if you pay late and cash advances. And, you know, unless you pay off that credit card in full, 100% on time, every month without exception, don't make a mistake, you're going to be paying a lot of interest. So I really went through that painstakingly. And in the second chapter, Debt and Disease Part 2, I use that smoking analogy again, but we talk about things like bank loans and... Uh, HELOCs and lines of credit and payday loans. And uh, really, again, a little bit of a scared straight, those two chapters. But I think I did a, a pretty good job of explaining how they work and when, they, when, and when you can use them responsibly and how to do that. Yeah, you know, Rob, I really, I, I really enjoyed the depth of um, you, the depth you went into to sh- scare or or educate all use um, people about credit card debts because you know it is crippling we can look at like the debt ratios and Canadians are increasing we're consumer or sorry discretionary debt levels are we owe more than we are we have as discretionary income right now and that's been for years and and and, and, you know without going too far down the rabbit hole no pun intended (laughs) you know debt used to be Uh, uh, a bad word. You know, if you talk to my parents' generations or even more so my grandparents' generation when they were around, debt was something to be avoided at all costs. And they went to extreme levels not to incur any debt. It was a, it reflected poorly on you if you were in debt to someone else. And I also talked about in the book that it's become almost fashionable in some circles, Mm. not all to be fair, but, um, you know, almost fashionable to say, <laughs> I have $17,000 worth of uh, credit card debt. Well, have you thought about that now? Yeah. So uh, I, I think there, that we need a little bit of a, a shift in how we look at debt. And I don't want to, you know, go back 50 years ago and shame people. But at the same time, I think we'd all be a little more responsible with our credit cards if we all put our credit card bills up on our Instagram posts when we're posting mm-hmm. about our vacation. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I, the credit card companies have done such a good job at making it easy to get debt to your example about schools. I mean, I remember going to university and there's an Euler and Edmonton Eskimo toque for, or Edmonton Oilers and Edmonton Eskimo toques for free. If you signed up for your credit card, you're like, wow. Probably didn't get a lot of those. Now, had they been leaf toques, <laughs> well, we'll get to that. Um, okay. But it just, it just fascinates me that like even from a systemic 
perspective that the universities allow them to come in there knowing what they're going to be doing to students. And, and this one part of your book, um, you mentioned, I think it was, maybe it was when your daughter was there, but it said, live like a student. Um, I wrote down here, live like live a student. as a student without living like a student. It just like who as a student, when did it become bad to live like a student? I know. I think it was great. We practiced like constraints around your financial life. And, uh, it just, to me, I, I think this debt, cause it starts young. And then it just is like this chronic, you, you use the word disease, chronic disease that just is slowly eating away at our well-being. And these credit cards companies deliberately know what they're doing, just like your example with the cigarette companies. Oh, and it is deliberate. You know, there was a, a report that came out a couple of years ago. I, I forget where I read it. But of the 46-ish percent at the time of Canadians that carried rotating credit card debt from month to month and, and never paid it off, Almost all of those people began that habit while they were in college and university or within a year of graduation. So they know exactly what they're doing. Mm -hmm. And it's funny because uh, eight or nine years ago, the federal government changed some laws around credit cards where they had to ask for your permission in order to raise your limit. What they used to do with student credit cards, they start someone off with, you know, three or 500 bucks, nothing, nothing too dangerous. Then as the student used it, they'd increase it $300. They'd increase it again, $300 until they built it up. Now they have to ask for permission. So they actually did research to find out what was the sweet spot, how much was students charged to the bill and have their parents save them. And they started offering that amount before they started handing it out. And I'm like, come on. It's it's so bad. And it's, I, I, again, I like how you laid that out with the, which seems like such crazy story about the cigarettes. And I'm just thinking back to that Flintstone commercial, Winston cigarettes. It said something to the gr- degree of like Winston cigarettes taste like a good cigarette, a good filtered cigarette should taste. And I was watching that. Yeah. Well, you know, your, your, your listeners should uh, head onto YouTube and just, just Google it. Flintstone yeah. cigarettes commercials or Beverly Hillbillies cigarette commercials. Same thing. Oh yeah. Take it's, another puff. Uh, it's eye opening. I'll include that in the, the notes. But and then as soon as I stopped watching and I was like, you know, wait a second, like this seems so unrealistic that this is happening. But if you look at like say MasterCard, what was their slogan for years? Uh, priceless, you know, like to, to forget how much it's going to cost you priceless. <laughs> yeah. My idea of a priceless credit card is receiving the bill at the end of the month and having zero on it. Yeah. That's and something, I don't know if you want to comment on this, this is just percolating in my brain right now, is that I find through conversations that I have, um, we know that we shouldn't have credit card debt. I mean, we know that. But the, the fact is, we are inundated it, in it. We are in a system and an environment that pushes credit cards. So really rationally it makes sense that people get in credit card debt when you look at the system and how credit cards are so pushed and limits are up but i find people often will be like oh yeah yeah i know pay it off pay it off like i'll pay it off and like i have all these conversations people always i pay it off don't worry don't worry but then you look at the statistics and the statistics are selling something different so i think you mentioned about shame there's a lot of shame when people having credit card debt or guilt that they know they shouldn't be doing it but they just can't get out of it and I really like one quote that you have, and I'll let you comment on it. But it said, the first step to handling our credit cards is for everyone to fully accept that when we use our credit cards, we're not paying, we're borrowing. 
And I That's like right. that because it gives a good perspective. Maybe you can elaborate on like where the where that came from. Well, I, I don't know if we can blame the credit card companies for this, but somewhere in our society, we decided that we were going to say that when we use our credit cards, we pay with our credit card. You and I go out for lunch. I say, I paid for lunch with my credit card. Put some gas in my car. I say, I paid for the gas with the credit card. Because you know what? When we use our credit cards, we're not paying for anything. Credit card provider is paying on our behalf But what we're doing is called borrowing. We're borrowing that money from the credit card provider. And honestly, I believe a lot of people would be more thoughtful about how they use their credit cards if sometimes we were just a little bit more literal when we used our credit cards. Mm -hmm. I know people that have had trouble with their credit cards because there's no pain when you use your credit card. You've push that off for the future. And we've already discussed how we don't see ourselves in the future. But I know people that have taken masking tape and a Sharpie and wrote debt. So it was their debt card or their borrowing card. Sean, I imagine this. Imagine if you went to a big box store, let's say Best Buy, and you decided you were going to buy a new big screen TV so you can watch the Leafs in the playoffs this, uh, this spring. And you go to Best Buy and you, you know, you choose the TV that you like and you get an associate to help you pull your new TV down off the cart and it's in the box still. And you, you put it on one of those carts and you, you roll it up to the front of the store. Imagine if the cashier said this, Hey, Sean, nice big screen TV. Will you be paying for your big screen TV using cash or your debit card? Or will you be taking out a potentially high interest loan with your credit card because you really can't afford this TV and don't have any money? I think that would be awesome if we asked ourselves that question because 40% of the time, that's exactly what's happening. Yeah, I mean, that would definitely put friction in the buying process. And I think that's what we need because the credit card companies have done such a good job making it painless. So I, yeah. Well, you're gonna have to write. You're gonna have to write the credit card companies and give them your suggestion. Yeah, yeah, that that will. I'm sure they'll take it. Yeah, Yeah. I wrote a piece for the Globe and Mail once suggesting that a student credit card company would be better off if, before they issued the card, they asked the student to go online and take a small educational course on how the credit card actually worked. No one called me. Don't understand why. No. Wow. They should. You know. You you got me thinking here, and I'm just thinking out loud. I really wish there would be a research um, project done on, it would be hard to do this, but like, cause you, you hear people always giving advice to students to, yeah, you need a credit card to build some credit, which I understand we need credit. We're going to borrow things later. But again, to your point, if all we need is a mortgage, I guess what I'm saying is I wonder what the trade-off is between like, say someone didn't have the best credit because they had no debt but they got a higher interest on their home. They didn't like debt, so they paid that home off earlier than most people. Is going through the potential devastating like, chains of credit card journey worth it? I don't well, know. in a perfect theoretical world, you know, someone would get a credit card when they're a student, use it once or twice a month on things they were absolutely going to buy anyhow, pay off that credit card in full every month so they didn't pay a cent in interest, thereby building up their credit rating so when they get that mortgage later on down the road, they get a preferred interest rate. Again, easy to say, Mm -hmm. but a lot harder to do. 
But uh, again, I'm not opposed to student credit cards, but I think their limits need to be, you know, true limits that keeps the spending under control and won't allow them to get into trouble. And I think there needs to be a better education piece on how to use them. And at that point, you know, then the student becomes responsible for making better decisions. And we've given them the tools to do it if we provide the education piece. But I'll tell you from my own experience when I was younger, and it's one of the things I talk about in the book is I had no idea. And I was in my 30s before I realized when you do a cash advance with a credit card, when you take your credit card over to an ATM and take out cash, you start paying interest, a higher rate of interest, a higher rate of interest plus a fee, a higher rate of interest plus the fee and the interest on the fee the second the money comes out in the machine. There's no grace period for paying it off on time. And it was just an odd circumstance for me in my 30s where I was going to buy something with cash and I needed, I think it was $2,000 in cash. I knew I was going to be getting $2,000 in cash in three weeks. So I thought, I'm so smart. I'll just go, you know, take out the cash on my credit card, carry it over and I'll pay it off. I had no idea that was going to cost me hundreds of dollars in interest. And that was one of those eye-opening moments for me. It's like, you know, these guys don't miss a trick. You know, Rob, as we're talking, I can feel my like cortisol in my body rising. <laughs> this just bothers me. I just, and because again, it cripples people. It cripples them psychologically, emotionally, physically, and these companies know they're doing it. And they don't provide the education. Of course, why would they? But it just, it bothers me. And something else I, from your book, just share with us how many credit cards are out there at the time of the writing. Oh, I think it was oof, my, my book I wrote. It was it 4 million? What did I write, Sean? 4 million? Uh, wait, maybe, I, I, I have 74 million. <laughs> oh, maybe, maybe it was 74 million. Yeah, I'm sorry. I no, read no. that part in a while. But yeah, it's yeah. a lot. I remember it was an average of about four credit cards for every adult. In okay. Yeah. Which would, and, yeah. And, and assuming that a lot of adults only have one or two, there's a lot of people out there with eight and nine and they're being used. Yeah. And that's where like, we're at 33, 34 million people in Canada. And of course not everyone's up oh, okay, a credit right. card, yeah. but 74 million. I just looked it up. It is. And I, I, sorry, that was, you wrote the book a while ago and that was a very big point, but to regardless of the the number, there's way too many credit cards for how many people there are, but these banks just keep getting that interest. I'm going to, I want to talk about some other things and I'm going to get off this topic, but it boils my blood because it, it starts people young. Imagine back to our compounding with rabbits. If, if, compound interest that the banks were out there like saying like hey look at this like i'll give you a free toque if you sign up for um fifty dollars a month to your tax-free savings account interest can be your best friend when you're earning it but if you're paying it yeah okay i'm gonna i'm gonna get off before that topic before i get too uh too <laughs> too much i'm gonna talk about mario and luigi now or better yet can you talk to us now about another form of debt <laughs> mortgages and <laughs> what does this have to do with mario and luigi as you point out in the book well i wrote actually three chapters in the book on housing and the chapter that you're referring to was actually the first chapter i wrote of the book you would think when you write a book you write them in order one two three and there's 12 chapters in the book I'm not normal. I was all over the page. In fact, the first chapter of the book was the last one I wrote. Um, But that aside, I decided to start by 
telling young people about mortgages. And this chapter is about how mortgages work, terms and amortization and how income, uh, sorry, how interest rates impact your mortgage and how you pay overall. And I wanted to find a fun pop culture reference so that I could compare someone who made a good housing decision with someone who made a less than good housing decision. And when I first wrote the chapter, I used the Brady Bunch, okay? And uh, it just didn't work. There was just too many different mortgages going on. And the Brady Bunch was an old reference that didn't work as well as the Flintstones and had all kinds of inappropriate relationships going on. So I, I had to turn that off. And I looked over at my son, who was about eight at the time, and he was playing Mario Brothers on the TV. And I'm, oh, that's perfect. And that's kind of where it started. But I tell the story of two brothers who are plumbers named Mario and Luigi. And Mario and Luigi are experts at collecting gold coins. And they each collect 100,000 gold coins, known as loonies. And so they decide to take this $100,000 and buy a house. And one brother buys a, a, what I would call a reasonable small house, and the other brother buys a house that exceeds his means. And, you know, the book was wrote in 2014, so the, the, the prices at the houses are completely unrealistic now. But I think the larger lesson remains that the two brothers bought houses that were $175,000 apart in price, but by the time they structured their mortgages and made different mortgage decisions, um, it was over $800,000 that one brother ended up paying more than the other. He bought more house. He put down a smaller down payment. He ended up paying a mortgage default insurance on that. Uh, he ended up amortizing it over an additional five years. And all those seemingly reasonable decisions that people make all the time when you look at the big picture, really add up to some big math. So that's kind of the the how I use Mario and Luigi to teach about mortgages. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I, I again, I, I just think your your references are really good because it allows us to envision it. You know, for a lot of younger people who haven't had a mortgage or people in general, like, yeah, you hear about these like ratios and how much can you afford and amortization and this default insurance but you just you made it simple with two characters then it showed two examples and i think our brains just hook like you're giving an underlying same message but you've got these characters that just hook us in just like the zombies and i think yeah and, and one of the chapters that i'm proudest of in the book is the chapter that follows mario mortgages hmm. and that chapter is called perspective because i kind of asked the reader reader to step back and think for a moment. And I'm convinced that when we talk about houses and mortgages and stuff like that, we get so acclimated to working with large numbers that sometimes we forget what they represent in our lives. You know, you're buying a house that in today's world, uh, you know, I'm in the GTA. So, you know, <laughs> 800, 900, over a million dollars. And by the time you pay interest on that, you know, but in the examples in the book, I think it was $800,000 difference. It's been a long time since I read my own book. But $800,000 just by buying a, a nice house, but one that was $175,000 less. Yes, it had less bedrooms. Yes, the kitchen was nice, but it wasn't custom. You know, it had a single car garage, not a double car garage. But because he had more modest housing, he was able to save 
a large sum of money if it is $800,000. And think about that, $800,000. And I ask the reader to think about, you know, how would your life change tomorrow if you suddenly found or won or inherited $800,000? How many years do you have to work to earn and save $800,000? It's a lot of money. So when we look at things like housing, and mortgages, and interest rates, and terms, and amortizations, it gets so easy sometimes to fall into the, it's only X dollars per week, or X Mm -hmm. dollars per month, and I make enough money that I can afford that, as long as absolutely nothing goes wrong in my life. When you're spending that much more money, and what do you get over the long term for it? And more importantly, what could you do with that money instead? Yeah, I, I I really like that from another perspective. And we talked about that hyperbolic discounting or the empathy gap for ourselves in the future. Because in that moment, if we don't pull out the difference to find that $800,000, we think I deserve it. Oh, I work hard. I need this right now. Like my monkey brain, the emotional side of my brain is like in full gear. And it's like, oh, I need this right now. I deserve it. I work hard for my money. But you did $800,000 is a retirement. For, you for, do work hard for your money. So turn your monkey brain off and look for ways to use that money that you absolutely worked hard for as efficiently as possible. Yeah. And it, it's the housing, yeah, the cost is just so incredibly high. And there's even lots of research that shows that um, our happiness levels in a house, like a new house we buy, Happiness levels for my house definitely do increase if you buy your dream home, but your happiness levels in your overall life don't after, sure. after a long period of time. And yeah, $800,000, just to your point again, it's just so much money that we're uh, throwing away unconsciously. Because like another thing that happens, I find with these mortgages is that like there, there's an anchor, so to speak, that the, the banks do. It's like 25-year amortization. That's the anchor. That's the set point that everyone thinks about. But why not pay it off earlier, save some of that money? Or the anchor in the GTA area is like, you got to pay $800,000. I'm sure there's other ways. Maybe what your thoughts on this idea of like, here's the status quo. I got I to gotta follow that. Well, I, I don't know what to tell young people in the GTA about housing because at this point, I, I don't think there are any good options. I you know, while every situation is different and it's dangerous to paint everything with big, broad strokes, I think, generally speaking, people in the GTA are better off to find reasonable rent. Again, easier said than done and invest the difference than pay the cost of housing in the GTA now. But I don't have that answer. But to the whole uh, keeping up with the Joneses, and in that chapter I talked about perspective, I asked the reader to really sit back and think about, you know, what do you think of? What are your best memories when you hear the word home? You know, and when you think about home, maybe that's the time you brought your baby son or daughter home from the hospital. Maybe it was a big Thanksgiving dinner that you had the whole family there and somebody else announced they were getting wedding. But I'm betting when I ask that question that my favorite memory, Sean, your favorite memory of home that you're thinking about right now I'm betting it has absolutely nothing to do with the size or the fanciness of the house it occurred in. It had to do with family. It had to do with people. And you don't require a big fancy house for those things. And I just 
really think people need to keep those things in perspective. And again, I can't be clear enough, you know, there's a real drive right now between super ultra small homes, you know, 650 square feet on a trailer. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about, you know, a nice 12, 1400 square foot bungalow, the type of home that your parents and grandparents raised much larger families in than we're having today. And I think there's just a lot of opportunity there. Yeah. And just on the, on the uh, overall well-being side to the grandparents and parents, they, those generations actually reported more control and like at ease around their finances, despite having houses that were dramatically less size. So it's just a perpetual cycle. I'm looking at the time here, Rob. Uh, I got a couple questions left, but we have talked about the Toronto Maple Leafs a couple times. Here we go. <laughs> <laughs> and by the way, Connor McDavid's over here, even though he's an Ontario guy. But uh, <laughs> funny, I gave I gave a speech in um, uh, Cold Lake, Alberta. Oh yeah, yeah, years ago. And uh, right in the middle of the speech, I cracked some joke about some guy named Connor in the airport begging me to go back to Toronto. And no one laughed. I couldn't oh, believe it. Really? <laughs> <laughs> oh, really? But um, what's the reference to money and uh, the Toronto Maple Leafs? Yeah, well, listen, I, I am a diehard fan, have been all my life. And uh, I, I, I understand why that would cause your listeners to question my intelligence. So <laughs> that was them. Um. But this is a true story. Uh, I was, this is, I don't know, eight, 10 years ago, but it was March or April. And this is, this is when the Leafs sucked even more than they do right now, when the Leafs underperformed expectations more than they do right now. And it was March or April, and I was reading the sports section. And, and in Toronto, every year we'd have that, that magic number, the number of games that the Leafs would need to win or their opponents would need to lose if the Leafs were to have a snowball's chance in of making the playoffs. And it's there every year. And some sports columnists would be writing, you know, if they'd have won that game against Edmonton back in October, they wouldn't be in this position right now. And I flip the paper over to the business section. And remember it's March or April. And there'd be that same article we see every year. RSP deadline is only four weeks away in I don't know, 42% of Canadians have not contributed anything and are scrambling to collect it. So I took those two ideas and merged them together to take a shot at my own Toronto Maple Leafs and to talk about, you know, don't wait until the last minute to make RSP contributions. Do it perpetually throughout the year. Pay yourself first. Get ahead of the curve a little bit. And I kind of mix those two ideas together. Yeah, I, I thought it was I thought it was really, really good analogy. And, and I think it's because I'm a I'm a loyal Edmonton fan. And I feel like we share the same emotions <laughs> every fall and every spring is that, Oh, they're going to do it. And actually, as you're saying that uh, my mind was thinking like, you know, your four things that you talk about is your income, debt, savings, and keep up with the Jones. Rationally, that makes sense. Sure. But we, but, but our behaviors prevent us doing that. <laughs> rationally it makes sense to not give hope into the Edmonton Oilers <laughs> for the last 10 years that they haven't made the play. Oh no, they did make the playoffs, but, but rationally it makes sense that they're not going to do well. But for some reason, the human brain just fills me with this false optimism. And it sounds like the Toronto Maple Leafs have the same thing with you guys every year. Um, all right. Well, I want to respect your time. Uh, 
I got, uh, yeah, two questions here. So I, I really appreciate you sharing your ideas. And again, I kind of summarized your four points there. I like how it's simple as focus on the income, the debt, saving, and keeping up with the Jones. So this is more of a, a, I guess, a question for Rob outside of the book. Having been in the personal finance industry for a while, being a columnist, making, or writing articles, writing a book, what do you think, what do you think your money story is? What I, what I mean by that, like, what does money mean to you? And you don't have to be too personal. It could just be like kind of your, your, your money identity. What is, what's your money story? We all have a story. We all attach meaning towards the story we have. Sure. Well, um, this may be a little all over the page again, if you'll excuse the pun, no. but uh, you know, I do not work in the financial services industry. I've never been in banking. I've never been in insurance. You know, I've never been in investing my professional background is in training and communication. So that's the first part. And I also, you know, one of the cores of my personal finance philosophy stems from my childhood. Mm -hmm. I grew up on a small family farm in Southern Ontario. And while I didn't learn a lot about money being on the farm, I learned an awful lot about self-sufficiency and independence. Probably more than any other profession, farmers do not like to pay other people to do things for them. They are among the most creative, the most MacGyver-like people on the planet. So I was taught that independence and and do-it-yourself philosophy from a very young age. And that, that stays with me to this day if something should go wrong on my house or... Um, if, if, if there's any way that I can do it myself without paying someone else, I'll do it. In fact, I, I had to learn as I grew up that there were times where it absolutely makes more sense to have somebody do it. But that was a hard lesson for me to learn. So I'm, I'm, I'm very good at managing costs. And the other thing that I think I'm pretty true to is this whole idea of not keeping up with the Joneses. I'm in my house in Ajax right now with 1,600 square feet. You know, it's a nice home, but you would never walk into it and say, this is a fancy home. You know, we have, uh, we do not have granite countertops over there in the kitchen and our appliances do not match. And it's, it's just mm-hmm. a very typical family home. And we've worked at, you know, fixing it up as best we can over the last 20 years that we live here. But if we can't afford to do it without you know, we won't go into debt to fix our house. We do it as we can save the money. Um, my cars, right now I have, in the book, I talked about my uh, Honda Accord. Mm-hmm. The Accord has moved on now, mm. but we have a, we just bought a used Toyota Prius. It's four years used. It's in great shape, but, you know, it's a hatchback, so we can pull all our stuff around easily. It's obviously bulletproof, reliable. The Prius has been built for 20 years now, and it will save us a ton of money on gas. The other car is a used Honda CRV. So we don't, you know, you would never see my wife and I driving around town in our cars and think that we were wealthy. You know, you would think that we drive around and use vehicles because we do. So I, I think I'm pretty good at, you know, uh, following the advice that I preach in that way. Yeah. Well, Does that help? Yeah, that's fantastic. And I think we all learned that personal finance is just that it's personal. And I think hearing people's money stories and what it means to them just helps others reflect on their own story. So yeah, no, that, that's super helpful. But, but uh, like I talk about in the book, it's never been a goal of mine to be rich or wealthy. And, 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 you know, I'm not putting myself on a high pedestal. If somehow tomorrow I would, 
you know, inherit $15 million, I'd take it. Okay. Mm -hmm. But it's always been more important to me to be what I call in the book comfortable. Mm -hmm. I don't want to be losing sleep at night because I have financial stress. That's important to me. I don't plan on a, you know, a, a, a retirement where I'm, you know, living in a southern country for eight months of the year before coming back to Canada for four months of the year. You know, we'll do some traveling for sure. We've got some money set aside for that. But I just want to live an average, comfortable lifestyle. And that's what we've always aimed to do. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. Because it's something that uh, we, we chat about on this podcast is that the external things, the size of our brokerage or investment accounts, those, those are external things. And like when the market does what it does in March of April or April this year, a lot of people's self-worth went down with it. And that internal locus of control of your words of being comfortable, it's to steal from MasterCard on a non-debt way. That's priceless to have like inside of you is what you need. And I mean, yeah, you know, and, uh, it's funny when we talk about investing and I, and I don't go into that subject terribly often, but you know, one of the things that's always amazed me is, you know, people talk about that, that balance between risk and reward and me, I can't speak for anybody else, but me, I think risk is terribly overrated. Mm -hmm. I just can't understand why somebody would risk what they've worked hard for, you know, to accumulate so they can have a comfortable lifestyle so that they can have a wealthy lifestyle. I would never put at risk what my wife and I have worked toward so that I can have more. And I think part of long-term financial planning is understanding that there is a point when you have enough and that risking enough to get more doesn't necessarily make sense. And in my world, it doesn't make sense at all. Yeah, I, I really, really like that point and the, the, the term enough because I really feel like, again, the, the, the intent of the show, our money, our mind, and what matters most is I find when we don't know what matters most, we're chasing something and that's when right. we expose ourselves to risk. When and those goalposts always move. They just keep moving. When we know what matters most, yeah, I don't want to risk it. So I really, really appreciate that point. Um. I do. I don't want to keep you because I, I said an hour here, but I got a question that I really like to ask, and I think it's going to be applicable here. So we talked about your money story. You mentioned your son playing Mario Kart was um, helped you give that analogy. So I, I, I take it you have a, you have children. <laughs> um, fast forward now, um, you're ninety years old. You're looking back. At, get into that time machine I talked about. Yeah, get in that time machine. You're looking back on your life and you decide to write a legacy letter to, to your children, their children, or even their children. What would this letter say about comfort in your words, comfort money and the purpose of money in our lives? I would, hmm, that's a good question. I would suggest to my children that relationships and people and who they spend their time with is more important than money. But at the same time, money provides money properly handled, provides comfort to enjoy those relationships 
well. And I don't mean in a wealthy perspective, but relationships, you know, how many times have you heard the number one cause of relationships failing is money problems? Mm -hmm. So I would suggest that, you know, and certainly in terms of marital relationships, you know, talk to your partner about money, be on the same page about money and have realistic expectations about money, which will in turn enable you to enjoy those comfortable, real relationships. I don't know if I explained that well. It was perfect. Uh, really, really well. I, I, I like that because you talk a lot about the relationship, the people who you spend your time with, but you need the tool of money to be able to do that. But the first thing you said was the relationships and the people. So, yeah. Um, so then my, my last question is, I'm going to give you the answer to this one, is I always ask for a book that we could recommend based on our conversation. So based on our conversation, can you tell people where they can find more about Rob, about your book, and um, just, yeah, if people want to look you up and buy your book. Sure. Well, if, yeah, if anybody wanted to find me, uh, I'm pretty good at answering email. Not simple. I'm Rob at WealthingLikeRabbits.com. And if anybody wanted to pick up a copy of the book, it's available on Amazon. Or if they want a signed copy, they should uh, go to my website, www.WealthingLikeRabbits.com, and you can buy it there. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to to share your insights and knowledge on, I was going to make a joke about fornicating rabbits, but on. I think, it, I think it works with the title of your podcast. Yeah, I know. That's why. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you so much. And I appreciate you spending some time with us. Sean, thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun. Thank you for tuning in this week. If you've been enjoying the guest, please head over to Apple Podcasts or Spotify and leave a review as it helps with guests. I look forward to this year, 2021, as we continue to talk about our minds, our money, and what matters most. <laughs>